Before you listen to today's episode of Macrodose, just a quick word from me on the show's future. PTO's partnership with Macrodose is coming to an end in a few weeks, but the show will very much be continuing. So if you would like to still listen to James Meadway's excellent weekly roundup of all things economic, be sure to subscribe to Macrodose directly. Just search for Macrodose wherever you listen to your podcasts to sign up, and also do check out their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Macrodose, where you can also access lots of bonus content. You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be covering, first, as President Biden makes his annual address on the State of the Union, we'll be taking a quick look at some new job figures that signal positive news for the US economy. Second, we'll dig a bit deeper into asking why this good news for the US might be bad news for the rest of the world. And finally, I'll be covering the record-breaking profits for BP, Shell, ExxonMobil and any other fossil fuel producer, which have skyrocketed over the last year. For a first story today, I wanted to take a quick look at some new data coming out of the United States as of last Friday that shows a surprise wave of job growth and what it tells us about the future of the world's largest economy. We're recording this episode just hours before Joe Biden is supposed to speak to the nation at his annual State of the Union address, a yearly message delivered by the US president to a joint session of the United States Congress, which is meant to be a chance to assess the health of the country ahead of the calendar year, but in reality gets used as a mighty PR opportunity for the incumbent president to praise how successful they've been so far and how much better everything is going to get in the future. The new jobs figures will be a timely boost to Biden as he sets out his purported economic achievements. The US economy added another half a million or more jobs to its total in work, taking unemployment down to its lowest level since 1969. Now, this was in defiance of general predictions that uh, recession was either well in its way or already here and that joblessness would continue to rise. It also comes after the US central bank, the Federal Reserve, had been rapidly pushing up its own interest rate in an effort to drive up unemployment and therefore, in their minds at least, reduce inflationary pressure. Now, despite these efforts by the Fed, pay for employees in America is still continuing to rise quite rapidly at about 5.5% a year, well above the 3.3% average just before the pandemic. Like the UK, the US has seen very substantial numbers of people leaving the labour market in the last couple of years. There have been around 2 million more early retirements since the pandemic, for example. The result is that labour markets are tight, and that in other words, there are large numbers of employers looking for people to employ, and a relatively smaller number of people actually looking for work. Now, you might think this is all basically pretty good news. But this is the point at which things get a little weird. Remember, the Federal Reserve, the US central bank, believes that higher pay leads to higher inflation. This is wrong. Inflation today is coming from the rising cost of food in particular. And the rising price of food has more to do with the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the rising cost of transport, a huge outbreak of bird flu, the effects of climate change and harvests around the world, and this huge mess that we're in, then it has to do with how much you're paying workers. Average pay rises are still lower than the overall rate of inflation, so in other words, most people in work are still steadily being made poorer. That doesn't stop the Federal Reserve blaming wage rises for price increases. This is the wage price spiral that we've heard a fair bit about in Britain as well. 
The relatively good news in terms of employment and wages and salaries, therefore, means the Fed is likely to carry on trying to jam up its interest rate. And that brings us back to Joe Biden and the State of the Union. You might usually think that the stock market goes up and down with the state of the economy. That's what Donald Trump always used to claim. He'd talk up the rising US stock market as proof that America was indeed great again. It's what historically is supposed to happen, that when things are going well, there's a rush to buy shares in companies either making or expected to make profits, and so their prices of their shares rise. And when things are going badly, there's a rush to sell, and so prices fall. What's happened in the last few years is that this relationship has really broken down. As soon as the dramatically positive jobs data for the US came out, US stocks started falling. Those trading shares were keen to sell them, and so prices of the shares on offer fell. The reason is directly linked to the US Federal Reserve. Those in the markets in a position to buy and sell shares know that if news on the jobs and wages is good, the Federal Reserve is more likely to push up interest rates because it believes that more jobs and higher pay cause inflation. And pushing up interest rates is what it tries to do to bring inflation down. So good news on jobs and wages means we can expect US interest rates to stay higher for longer. But that's bad for US stock markets, or at least those trading stocks, because for well over a decade, arguably now for two really, actually since the early 2000s, those trading, those stocks and shares have become dependent on very, very cheap borrowing to fuel their buying. Cheap money policies from the Fed, in other words, very low interest rates and lots and lots of quantitative easing after 2008, have fueled speculation on the stock markets for years, pushing up prices on those stock markets. So if the Fed starts to make borrowing for speculators more expensive, this makes shares less attractive. That in turn means those trading shares want to sell them and prices start to fall. In other words, good news is bad news as far as the US stock market is concerned. If you wanted the clearest possible sign of how the interest in capital and labour clash, it's right here in front of you. The more jobs that are created, the higher wages go, the worse people trading stocks and shares in the US stock market think things are, that the share prices of major stocks start to fall. And the next time you're wondering how workers in the US are getting on, maybe just check to see where the US stock market has dipped. For President Biden, balancing these competing interests will be fundamental of any potential re-election campaign in the next few years. You can hear more about the state of US politics and climate economics in particular in our upcoming interview with US-based author and journalist at the New Republic, Kate Aronoff. Just head over to patreon.com slash macrodose and subscribe today. On to our second story. I'm focusing on the state of the US economy today, not just because it's interesting in itself, but because what happens in what is still the world's largest economy has huge implications for the rest of the planet. So if interest rates in the US have gone up, it tends to attract finance from the rest of the world. If you have money to invest, it makes more sense now try and get that money into dollar-denominated assets like US government bonds. That, in turn, is likely to make the dollar rise in value. To get hold of those dollar-denominated assets, you need dollars. To get the dollars, you have to take whatever currency you currently have and turn it into dollars, so the price of the dollars goes up on world markets. If this internationally mobile money is flowing into the US, however, it means it's flowing away from the rest of the world. And that means that smaller, less developed economies are particularly vulnerable to this kind of capital flight. Over the last decade or so, whenever the Federal Reserve has tightened its policy, in other words, started to push up interest rates, started to wind back on quantitative easing, or say it's going to wind back on quantitative easing, 
that tightening has resulted in some chaos in the global south. So money that can choose where it goes to try and earn the highest return. This is the flows of global capital, these vast sums of money that move around the world every day. If it's got a choice about where it goes to earn the highest return, if it looks like a relatively safe bet, like the US is now offering a higher return, it'll go there rather than trooping off to some, what is seen as a more risky bet, like some developing country in the global south. And of course, when borrowing in dollars becomes more expensive, those countries that have been borrowing in dollars begin to struggle. So, for example, in 2013, when Ben Bernanke, who was Federal Reserve chair at the time, said he would soon reverse the policy of quantitative easing, investors dumped assets in these so-called emerging markets and rushed to buy financial assets in developed economies, which they think are going to be safer and now will offer a higher return, and that would include the US in particular. Over the last year, as the Federal Reserve has started to push up interest rates and as the dollar has risen in value, the pressure on smaller, poorer economies has mounted. In the years since the 2008 crash, many of these countries took on more and more debt. Borrowing seemed cheap and investors in the rest of the world were happy to lend them the money. They were looking for a return. That meant the global north and increasingly China and Chinese investors were happy to lend. But after smashing into COVID with the huge economic disruption this caused, many of those countries and many of those debts were already looking very shaky. As we covered a few weeks ago, five countries in the global south have defaulted on their debts since COVID, which means they said they're unable to repay their debts or make good on their payments that are due. Ghana is the, is the most recent of them. The IMF thinks there's a few more coming down the line. So when the economic news from the US looked worse a few weeks ago and the Federal Reserve looked like it would not start trying to put up interest rates as much as it had earlier said it would, this seemed to offer a reprieve to the so-called emerging markets. Flows of capital picked up and asset prices rose. This latest good news from the US is likely to now see that situation reversed as the Federal Reserve is now expected to increase interest rates further than it said it would. And so the appeal of those dollar assets for those holding money which can move around the world looking for a return, it's all going to troop back over to the US and go out of smaller developing economies or even quite large middle income economies. They can be especially exposed to these sort of movements and we're already feeling the strain. So Chile and Brazil are two that spring to mind there. Turkey was under pressure even before this devastating, appalling earthquake earlier in the week. Federal Reserve rate rises are kind of bad for pretty much everyone, except, of course, the people who are looking to deal in money. And workers in the middle class in the US share a common interest with those in the rest of the world in pushing back on the idea that this is how we deal with inflation, this is how we regulate the economy. What this reveals is the irrationality of the system, that you have institutions that are supposed to regulate and manage how capitalism operates, like the Federal Reserve, or even like the stock market, that can work in ways that are completely antithetical to the interests of actually most of the people on the planet. It's why it's worth paying attention to what the Federal Reserve does and what it says it's going to do. And it's why we need to think about what might be a better way of managing the economy and dealing with rising inflation than simply expecting the Federal Reserve, which has its own very particular views of the world, to carry the entire weight of adjustment. Our third story this week is some incredibly good news for BP shareholders who, like Shell shareholders last week and ExxonMobil's a week before, will be getting their slice of the all-time record-breaking profits. Across the globe, oil and gas companies have made unheard of profits in the last year on the back of disruptions to supply in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
As oil and gas prices soared, oil and gas companies made more money. This is what economists call economic rent, a special payment made to someone or to a company because of their special privilege in owning something we need access to. Famously, David Ricardo, one of the the very first economists back in the early 19th century, applied this term economic rent to landowners at the time. But it equally fits the oil giants today because they claim ownership rights over oil and gas supplies. And because prices have risen so much, they get to also claim huge amounts of additional revenue over their costs. They're not doing anything different. They're not changing how they produce the oil and the gas. They're not inventing some magic new kind of oil that allows them to earn massive profits with the innovation. They're just doing exactly what they always do and relying on the fact that prices have risen in the wake of this terrible war. In other words, every extra penny or cent in their profits has been extracted pretty directly from the rest of us. There's no special innovation or entrepreneurship or anything else involved. So this is rent in much the same way that you might pay rent to your landlord. They don't necessarily have to do very much to claim that rent from you. They just own the property and you pay them. BP or Shell or whoever owns the ability to pump out oil. They've got some machinery there, but that's already installed. The price of the oil goes up. They just claim more money from you because they're the ones selling the stuff that they claim ownership rights over, hence economic rent. Worse, I'd argue that these problems with record profits aren't going to go away. The price of oil and gas internationally has fallen over the last years. Demand has fallen and new supplies like new liquefied natural gas terminals have been opened up in Europe. But instead, the price of food is now soaring across the world, partly due to rising transport costs, which is the product of rising oil costs, but also due to disrupted supplies from things like a massive bird flu outbreak in the US and problems with harvests due to extreme weather. These soaring prices bring misery for most of us and even threaten starvation for millions, as a new piece of research in nature has suggested, looking ahead to the likely impacts of rising food prices over the next year. But those higher prices translate into fat profits for giant agribusinesses and speculators. As climate change worsens, these sorts of disruptions will worsen too. And with them, profits for the big monopoly producers of food are also likely to rise, in much the same way as the oil and gas companies have seen over the last year. I've written a short book on these issues with SOAS economics professor Kostas Lapovitsis and Doug Nichols, General Secretary at the General Federation of Trade Unions. It'll be out on 20th of February, and it delves into the economics of the cost of living crisis and how we should be responding to it. The book gives a bit more detail on what has been happening to the world, and what we need to do to prevent the squeeze and living standards getting any worse. If you want to come to the launch event in central London, you can register for free in Eventbrite. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.